My podcast guest this week has been called many things during the course of his long career, not all of them kind, polemicist, contrarian, and in light of recent events, even apologist. But to his many admirers, of whom I am one, he represents the acme of a particular type of journalism. Courageous, clear-eyed, coherent, and at times even curmudgeonly. He is Peter Hitchens. Yesterday evening, I sat in the studio and watched Volodymyr Zelensky uh, evoke the idea of fighting in the streets. Did you hear it? And what did you, how did you feel? We can't be sympathetic to somebody whose country has been attacked. Uh, If somebody invaded my country, I expect I'd want to take to the streets. Uh, So I I don't really want to engage in any criticism of a national leader. Uh, speaking up for his country and his people at a time when he's been attacked by a far greater power. Because like anybody, I'm, my natural instincts are, first of all, hugely against aggressive war, and secondly, uh, for the person who's being attacked against his attacker. And to be clear, it's for him and his people to decide how to proceed here on in, isn't it? Well, in, in theory, yes, in practice, in foreign policy, of course, nations all have to operate uh, under the pressures of their neighbours and of greater powers which are involved in the struggles that they're in. So up to a point, I think, has to be the answer to that in reality. A couple of days ago, uh, we had a development from the Russian side of things. They presented, in quotes, a peace plan that involved Crimea being recognised as fully Russian, Luhansk and Donbass uh, becoming, in quotes, independent, uh, cessation of hostilities from the Ukrainians and a guarantee from the Ukrainians that they would no longer seek NATO membership, EU membership. I presented this on the television here at GB News as, as, as a peace plan that ought to be taken seriously. If you're, in, if you're interested in reducing the body count, at some point people have to talk. I was widely pilloried uh, on Twitter as being somebody who was speaking up for the Russian side. That was not my intention at all. And it struck me with force for the first time that that kind of binary exchange is happening in this conversation. Oh, very much so. But then again, you, you, have to, you have to grasp that once the first shot has been fired, uh, rational discussion becomes harder. And also, once a country is seen as being under physical duress, uh, people are going to find it very, very hard to stomach the idea that some sort of peace agreement may one day have to come about. And my view is very much that war is hell and people don't understand just how much hell it is, the real sufferers from it are the innocent civilians who are driven from their homes and uh, in many cases killed and maimed, then I think that every effort should be made to diminish their suffering. And if this ultimately involves a a, a compromise which most of us would not like to make ourselves, then we have to understand that's the reason for the compromise, uh, that you have to end the deaths, that you must avoid, and this is a grave danger in the current circumstance, you must avoid Ukraine descending into the sort of pit of fire and screams which Libya has become as a result of, uh, of, of, of stupid and wrongful foreign intervention where life is simply impossible for most people to live. I remember um, probably my biggest uh, scoop uh, of my uh, career was interviewing Colonel Gaddafi and I asked him about his nuclear weapons program which he'd given up and was fairly embryonic. I should say. Um, but we are reminded, aren't we, that uh, he'd probably still be alive had he developed them and successfully developed them. Uh, and uh, you know where I'm going with this. The Ukrainians probably would still be in charge of their country had they not parleyed away their, their, their nuclear weapons in the 1990s. Well, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with um, 
uh, with all of that, but I would disagree with some of it, I, I think that the lesson that we've learned about nuclear weapons is they are in fact unusable. Uh, I'm not sure uh, whether Gaddafi ever had any serious attempt to have nuclear weapons, and I, I would say that the, a lot is talked about the Budapest Memorandum and the, the, the removal of nuclear weapons from Ukraine, but Ukraine never actually had nuclear weapons in the sense that even that Britain has them. Uh, it had no it had no control over them, and it couldn't secure them. And it's a, it's a bit of a fantasy uh, to pretend that Ukraine could ever have been a nuclear power. I think people should steer clear of that. It's factually, I think, misleading. You, you, you could equally well say that Kazakhstan uh, might have been a nuclear power. Same thing. Uh, several of the of the Soviet republics had on them uh, nuclear weapons, but they were controlled elsewhere, and the the, the people on whose territory they were didn't control them. Can I talk? Just take a step back to, to what you said a moment ago. Your revulsion, your visceral revulsion for warshed, uh, and, I, and I take it seriously when you say that, rather than the sort of posturing that you sometimes get from people. And in the day or two after the invasion began, my first instincts were, were obviously sadness because you knew what was coming for mothers and fathers and, and all the combatants. Um, but also that there had to be a recognition that, that there's no dishonour, well, there may be dishonour, but there's, there's good sense in occasionally realising at some point you need to raise, run up the white flag. And I've been struck, and maybe you have been too, and I noticed after the, the Syria adventure of, the, of five, six years ago, that those on the left, the liberal left, naturally you'd think inclined towards pacifism, often seem to be the ones who are most keen to bang the drums of war. This is a very extraordinary change. I mean, I am of the 1960s left. I was, you know, I, I, I spent an awful lot of my late teens and early 20s opposing the Vietnam War. In fact, it's coming up to the anniversary of the great demonstration in Grosvenor Square on March 17th, 1968, in which I took part. And I don't actually- You're of my birth, if that helps you. Regret at all having done so, because the more I know about the Vietnam War, the more the wronger I think it to have been. And I think that there's no, there simply isn't any, uh, any moral justification for it, and also any strategic justification. It was, uh, it, people were in the end dying for a mistake. And it was a great, a great and enormous folly. And in those days to be on the left was to be against war. And a very interesting change did take place. And it was in many ways epitomized by my late brother Christopher, who became an enthusiastic supporter of the Iraq intervention, for instance, while remaining in many ways a, a Marxist revolutionary. And it's a fascinating thing that we now have uh, what you could most loosely call liberal wars, uh, wars which have a left-wing utopian motivation, which the left are very keen and supporting, and in fact, what where countries which would once have had substantial left-wing anti-war movements now no longer have them at all. And if you attack wars, and I was very much against the the intervention in Syria, which turned so many people into corpses and so many more into refugees for what I regard as no good reason, I was astonished that so many of the attacks on me for doing that came from the left. But it, 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 we have to now grasp that it is the left which is now the warmongering party mm. but the, because the they left, believe that war can do good the, and this is a grave mistake but 20 years ago that wasn't true i mean i, I you know i remember the build-up um to the invasion of iraq in 2003 i ended up with the american army going in with the u.s third infantry division i thought very hard about it and uh, contrary what people subsequently thought it, it wasn't a cakewalk when you were going in you know we, it felt you know 
sufficiently dangerous to be worried about your life. Obviously, there were other people who lost their lives in great numbers, but it wasn't a popular war, is what I'm trying to say. Something's happened between 2003 and today. Maybe it's social media, maybe it's just this sort of binary quality that the, the political conversation now has. But the, the demonstrations then were against the war. Now, they would be, if they were at all, they'd be for it. It's true. And propaganda for war has become much more sophisticated. And as I say, in the absence of the organized left, which is very good at protesting, uh, there really isn't much of a, of a uh, how should I say, a, um, a solid center for any serious protest. Parliament seems to me to become almost entirely unanimous on any subject you care to name, usually incorrectly. Uh, my my conclusion about most modern debates about either foreign or domestic policy is that it's become a positive disadvantage to know anything about the subject. And since MPs don't know anything about the subject, they can they can always fall in with what it is they're supposed to say. But th there certainly is no core opposition to war of the kind that used to exist. The What remains of the left is really now concentrated among the Corbynite rump, who for good reasons or bad are now widely despised and and almost totally without influence. So you can go ahead with it. And the, uh, the sophistication with which, uh, with which claims are made uh, is now much greater. If the Iraq war happened now, uh, there would be no mistake about weapons of mass destruction. No one would ever find out there weren't any. And that, that's, that, that is partly because of the state of, of the modern media, which is so conformist and gullible that it, uh, it makes me gasp. This war is, a, is an absolute disaster and a tragedy. There is nobody, I think, in the world who loathes Vladimir Putin for what he has done more than I do. I, it, I just find the whole thing is so disastrous for what I had so long hoped for, uh, which was the return of civilization to Russia. It's over. All the walls are going up again. And the, the, the response inside Russia will, will, will be to put, put their own walls up. The, the, it'll, Russia will become like Iran, a country nobody visits, with which we have no serious diplomacy. We don't know what they think. They don't know what we think. We'll be entirely cut off from them. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there are fantastic Iranian poets and composers. I just don't happen to know anybody. By, but I love my Dostoevsky, and I'm appalled when I see a university in Milan say, OK, we're going to take it off the curriculum. They reverse the decision. You know, the, 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 the composer of the Munich Philharmonic, who, who was told he would, unless he denounced Putin, he would lose his job. He refused to denounce Putin. He lost his job. This, this creeping reflexive Russophobia um, is there. It will presumably grow, grow stronger. People should disentangle their hatred of the Putin regime from their, their, their neutrality at, at worst for the Russian people. This is not a democracy which elected him, is it? Well, not really, no. Um, but I'm not sure that's the point. Uh, a lot of Russians certainly would have. I spoke to them. I, 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 I used to go there a bit and, and I spoke to Russians who said, well, of course we understand that, that Vladimir Putin is a man of many faults, but he, um, he leads our country effectively in, in numbers of ways and we therefore support him. I think that he did have substantial public support. Uh, I expect he probably still does have substantial public support because in, in circumstances of this kind, Countries rally around their, their their leaderships, do they not? Whether they're right or wrong, and 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 we sometimes do the same. So I don't I don't think that um, that's the point. The point is that this is this is the end. There were what 
30 years in which we could have uh, we we could have brought Russia back into the committee of civilized nations and they've all been wasted. And you say we wasted a fantastic opportunity in the early 1990s there should have been a sort of Marshall plan. That's that's the start of it and then we began began in the late 1990s to uh, to, to begin this policy of NATO expansion to treat Russia as if it was a recidivist country that was bound to attack its neighbors and I think we uh, we created the very conditions which we were claiming uh, to protect ourselves against and I'm not alone in this I'm far more expert people than I have said this from from George Kennan the architect of the Cold War the man who devised the system of, uh, of containment uh, which eventually beat the Soviet Union he was against it it's amazing to have a, a, a cause which unites in, in one place the there's a Metternich style uh, diplomatic brute Henry Kissinger and the hero of the left Noam Chomsky but both of them are united in believing that NATO expansion was a stupid policy and they're united with Yegor Gaidar uh, one of the most prominent uh, democratic liberal Russian politicians who, who went to his friend the Canadian ambassador in Moscow and said can you please get some sense into your NATO mm. colleagues this thing is crazy it will strengthen uh, the revanchist nationalists it, in, in short, what it what it will do is it will create something like Vladimir Putin, and it did. Putin himself, of course, when he began and he took over from Yeltsin, was not what he is now, or even what he was ten years ago. But the the attitude of the West towards Russia, I think, has formed Putin into the, into the disaster that he has become. Well, we've we've gone back, we're told, to the great man theory of history, where whether it's Zelensky or Putin matter, and therefore peering into their minds matters too. Um, you, you say, yes, early 1990s, the, that sense that there was an attempt to turn Russia into a sort of neo-liberal uh, economic laboratory, free market laboratory, was a mistake, as was uh, what then subsequently happened in terms of NATO, mem NATO expansion. And great man theory, what happens to individuals matters. If it's true, as Putin says it was, that he was reduced to effectively driving a taxi in the early 1990s, uh, he carries the scars. Well, this is, but this is what people don't understand about Russians. This is, these, the, the, when I was, shortly before I left Moscow, uh, you, you, you must have seen The Third Man, the great film. Well, a lot of people these days haven't, to my amazement. The opening scenes, you remember, of, of, uh, of Austrians ding, ding, and Vienna, ding, ding, ding. but standing on the streets, selling their personal possessions yeah. for bread. I saw this in Moscow. And the people who were doing it, no, they, was, they were scientists, they were civil servants, they were middle class people, very similar to me, yeah. and they were reduced to putting little... I remember it. I remember briefly being in the Sky Bureau in Moscow. The, 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 our driver was a physicist. Yeah, little, little, little tables by the, by the roadside in the snow, selling their personal possessions to live. And that's what we did to them. Uh, we, when we uh, triumphed over Hitler Germany... A huge effort was made, and this was this was a bitter war in which we they had tried to destroy us, and we had ended by destroying them. In in, in the in the, the the Cold War, nothing of the kind had happened, and in fact, by a great blessing, the Soviet Union had had, had actually dissolved itself rather than taken us on in physical war. Uh, we did nothing of the kind. In, in, you, the, the, Occupation authorities in, in post-war Germany, they did things like they built a genuine adversarial democracy. They made sure that real political parties emerged. They created a free and independent press. Uh, there was a huge effort made to construct a proper civil society 
and it was successful. I, I endlessly moved by the success of the rebuilding Germany after the war. Anybody who goes. And, and Japan. Yeah, and Japan. I, I know le less of Japan, but the German success, given what was the state of affairs when we arrived there, is astonishing. Why could we not have done that for Russia? Also, here is a very simple point, which I make over and over again. We owe them some thanks. In 1989, the Chinese communist state was confronted with people demonstrating for democracy in the heart of its capital, and it murdered them and successfully murdered them and, continue, as, and, and, and now denies that this ever happened and makes it a secret. And the Russians could have done that. The, 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 in, in the similar stages, in exactly the same year in the Soviet Empire, people were demonstrating for liberty and democracy on the streets of Leipzig and Dresden. Hmm. And the, 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 the Soviet authorities, they could have murdered them too, but they didn't. And not only did they not murder them, they abandoned that, uh, the, the, the horrible repressive state of East Germany. They let it fall. And then they pulled their troops and all their resources out of a vast area of, of Europe, while at the same time China was consolidating its iron grip uh, on its empire and continuing to hold on to Tibet and threaten Taiwan and presumably incubating its horrible racialist scheme to oppress the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And, and we, we behaved towards China as sycophants uh, seeking uh, favor and trade, and we behaved towards Russia, which behaved far, far more decently as if it was an enemy. Well, I've never understood the contrast between these two policies. Does it matter that McDonald's is closing in Moscow? Well, it does. I, 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 I believe that I was, the, I've seen people claiming all kinds of things about the date that McDonald's first opened in Moscow. I believe I was there when that happened and this was taken as did a- you, Did you buy one? Uh, y yes. Did you eat it? Yes. <laughs> I, no, I've got nothing against potatoes. I, I, I like um, I, I, I like hamburgers, and it actually tasted particularly delicious. It was one of the best uh, best uh, Big Macs I've ever had. Um, but no, and I also went when 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 Pizza Hut opened down the yeah. down the road from me. I I I get on the trolley bus and go down there and go and collect. A, if you could slightly longer, you'd get them for rubles. And I'd go and collect the, 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 the household pizzas and take them home to my, to my grand nomenclatura flat on Kosciuszki Prospect. Now, they, these were, it was hugely significant uh, to Russians. That they and felt, now they're going. They felt, we're, we're rejoining And now they're going. The world. And what somebody, does that say? Somebody said, here I have a slice of America. Yeah. Uh, and now they haven't got that anymore. And it's, it's, uh, it's all economic boycott and, uh, and, and closure and Iron Curtain again, isn't it? And being cut off. If you cut people off, they'll... Uh, they'll cut you off too, won't they? Germany managed to uh, create a, a, an oppositional parliamentary democracy. Uh, you're worried that we do not have enough robustness within our parliamentary system for siren voices to be given the opportunity they deserve to make their uh, sometimes contrarian opinions clear. You mustn't use that word. Okay. And contrarian is, a, is, is it describes somebody who takes a, a position uh, because he wants to attract attention to himself. Well, sometimes that's true of backbenchers, isn't it? You, I can I think of backbenchers. I, I, would never, I, I will never attribute that motive to anybody unless I can prove that that is their motive. Fair play. What's the better people word? Are, what's the people better are perfectly... I, I just use the word dissenting. Okay. Dissent, I get that. I, okay. I just think okay. people should well, be allowed the credit that they, they might be taking that position because they believe in it. Fair play. And my natural inclination, I think it should... Uh, many people, is that actually our MPs are, are not motivated often by vanity, but they... they they have they have purer uh, motives than than conceitedness or whatever it is. What I'm trying to get to is the scenes we saw in Parliament yesterday, 
which were necessarily uh, scenes of uh, unanimous adulation for Zelensky. Uh, are you saying that shouldn't happen as the weeks and months unfold here or hereafter? Again, you, it's it's very hard to argue against um, against emotional support for the leader of an embattled country. I don't mm. I don't want to get engaged. Okay. In this. Uh, no, if, I, what, I, what what I will object to and, and do object to is, is is if when we subsequently debate these matters that no that no dissenting or critical voices are allowed, and that also that we don't. Absolutely, that we don't get in, in, engaged in some kind of rush to war, in which no opposition is is voiced. I don't, I, I don't at the moment think it's likely, but you do hear people. No, people uh, you don't expect uh, advocating it. It's one thing for Piers Morgan to say, "Let's have a no-fly zone." Mm. When when a former senior head of intelligence of the British Army says, "No-fly zone," maybe you start to you worry. You do worry, and you, you you worry also when when members of Parliament say that we should expel all the Russians from this country. Uh, you think that you know, we are we are we are on the slope to hysteria here, and in which very very foolish decisions could be taken. And I'd done a, spent a lot of time studying the, the period before the First World War, uh, and also the Second. And the period before the First World War is an extraordinary, uh, rapid, a tumble, uh, irrational tumble from a from a, a fairly placid and, and happy peace into one of the most catastrophic conflicts ever to engulf the world and without very much thought and I really would like to avoid that happening. Look, I've got a final thought on Ukraine and, and then we'll park it of course sure. but uh, but I, I, I lay awake a couple of nights ago and I was thinking about the, the, the right analogy for surrender and I was thinking about was it 39 or 40 40 when the French decided you know having lost the best part of two million men lots of them at Verdun they weren't going to do it again and you know th th there is this enduring opprobrium for the for the garlic eating surrender monkeys but actually if you were French in 1940 you could do no other right well, hang on. The French, in many cases, fought like hell in 1940, but they were badly generaled. Uh, it's if you read Alistair Horne's account of it, particularly, and there are many cases where where, where, where they fought well, but they were they were badly generaled, and they were outsmarted by a, a brilliant, uh, absolutely brilliant stroke of the the, the, the sickle cut attack, which which diverted them into the wrong battlefields. But sure, I mean, I, anybody who knows anything about France uh, is. Um, how shall I put it, contemptuous of the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, uh, rubbish. Uh, Verdun was the most extraordinary battle. Uh, but and the Maginot Line, if it had only been uh, completed, or if the Belgians had remained in alliance with the French, would have been a very effective defence. So let's not have too much of, of that, shall we? No, my point is that sometimes surrendering makes more sense than it appears at the time, or to everybody. Well, sometimes, um, generally, surrendering becomes necessary because it's forced upon you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't. Uh, people don't uh, don't do it because they want to. Uh, but the, the reasons why you get to that stage can can be manifold: the failure to prepare, uh, folly in diplomacy, and that's of course the the eighteen the eighteen seventy uh, Franco-Prussian War uh, was one which Napoleon the Third just didn't need to have at all and was was basically taunted into and then and, and then lost. But nineteen 39-40 was a wholly different story. Uh, let's move on from Ukraine. Let's talk about John Burko. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's, he's probably going to lose his parliamentary pass. He won't weep over the fact he won't be able to access the parliamentary estate. He's accused of being a serial liar and a serial bully. Um, he, he says he was a reformer and sometimes to get things done, if you're dealing with a, a monolithic, monolithic institution, you need to shout at people. 
I have in the past offended John, John Becker. I don't know him. I once spent, he once gave me a lift to his constituency for a speaking engagement. That's the closest I've got to him. Uh, I don't share his politics. I don't like a lot of the things he said or done. I did think that as Speaker, he did a very good job in making Parliament a much more effective uh, body for holding the government to account. Debates were held at a time when they needed to be held. Ministers were summoned to answer for things. And I have always praised him for that. And I don't withdraw from any of that. I simply, I haven't read the report on which he's now been condemned. I know that he says that he that it's a kangaroo court. Uh, I, without having read it, I'm, I'm going to make no presumptions on it. Um, but I will stick to what I said, that unlikable as I find him, uh, politically unpalatable as I find him, I think that in many ways he was a good speaker. And I, I'm slightly puzzled as to, as to why so much opprobrium has been poured on his head. But I think I, I would be wrong to make any further comment on this thing until I've actually read the report on which this is based, because I, I simply don't feel you could, you could otherwise, and also heard his detailed rebuttal of it. But I, I, do, I, I, I do try very much to avoid the presumption of guilt. I think it's disastrous in public life, and we do it far too often these days. I think you should, you should know, uh, you should hear both sides on all occasions before even attempting to reach a conclusion. And if you can't reach a conclusion, then you should hold your counsel. People were making a conclusion on the basis of what they felt in their bones. He was a panjandrum, a pompous figure. He's not likable. He's not likable. Of course he's not likable. But, but, but would you want a likable speaker? I mean, it, it's a good was, question. Was it, was it a good, good thing? question. Was it a good thing to have Selwyn Lloyd as, as speaker after he'd, he'd, the entire, he'd been part of a government which had lied about Suez? You've written before that you missed the noble austerity of your childhood. What did you mean by that? Well, this was a... I was, this in, in my childhood was a country wholly dominated by the recent experience of war, which was personal in my household because my father had been very much in it on the, um, paradoxically enough uh, for this conversation, on the, the convoys to Russia. And so it was never out of our minds. But we were also, obviously, the country was broke. Uh, we ate filthy food. Uh, all our infrastructure was tatty, the major cities, particularly the ones, because my father was still in the Navy by this stage. Um, the ones I tended to live in were naval ports. They were pretty battered with lots of, uh, lots of un, unrebuilt, destroyed uh, buildings about. Uh, it, was a, it was an austere experience, but also one in which you could um, feel rather proud of yourself belonging to such a civilization. And so what if there was no material gain? What do you think people of his generation would make of, of modern Britain? What would really catch their eye? Uh, it's a massive question, I know, <laughs> of course it is. My father ended his life, I mean, I, I, I'll go into this in great detail, but very nearly broke. Uh, and. He often would would say, "Well, because we won the war, or, or did we?" He wasn't. He, he couldn't quite work out what benefits to, to the country had resulted from our, our our great victory, which he'd taken part in. I think he found, as many people did, whose whose lives reached their 
their peak in, in wartime. It was, it was, he, he, he famously said it was the only time in his life he ever knew what he was really doing. Uh, I think the same would be the case with my mother, that there was an exhilaration and companionship and shared adversity in war, which had raised everybody involved in that sort of thing to a, a wholly different level of life. So the one which, which we live in, in placid peacetime, and everything after was an anticlimax. It's why you're getting uh, scores of former servicemen from the British Army who want to go and serve in Ukraine, because it's that noble calling, isn't yeah, it, I suppose? Um, we're, we're a week into, uh, into Lent. How should I explain to my children why God matters? The, the simple question you have to ask yourself in all, in, in, in all matters of life from a very early stage is, how do you know how to be good? Uh, how do you know what is, what is good and what is not good? And also, when you're confronted with authority, uh, how do you know that that authority is justified and that its actions are, uh, are, uh, are justified and good? Where does it get its authority from? Where, where, crucially, and this as you grow older becomes more and more important, what is the source of law? We aren't actually governed in a civilized society by, uh, by a straightforward, uh, you're bigger than me, might is right circumstance. We are, to some extent, inadequately and imperfectly governed by the rule of law, which says everybody is subject to certain rules. Everybody, especially the powerful. And what is the origin of that? And the only origin, the only discoverable origin for any idea of what is absolutely good and what is not, the only discoverable origin for the rule of law over power, to which power must submit, has to be God. How is that passed into a system of governance? Well, it's passed into any system of governance where, 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 where the courts tell the government it can't do something because it's against its own laws, it's against its own rules, and the government then obeys the courts. Roger Scruton felt that the common law derived from natural justice. Uh, is the common law in trouble? I think, yes, because apart from anything else, one of the reasons, and it's such an old cause to me now, and almost dead, one of the reasons why I used to think we should we should leave the European Union was that I didn't think we could preserve our, our legal system if we stayed inside it. I thought common law was immensely valuable. It's not based on, on, on the authority of the state, as Roman law is. It, 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 it comes out of uh, out of the accumulated wisdom of uh, of, of a of a free society, and it's wholly different. And as a result, of course, it's in trouble. We're very much more codified and bureaucratized than we used to be when we relied on the common law. I like the idea of people knowing what's right or wrong without the state having to codify it for them. And they can derive that knowledge and understanding and gut feeling as, as what is right and wrong, yes, from a religious authority. Sometimes they can just find bits of it out themselves. Uh, and I'm a great believer in, in literature, being a, offering a, often a great manual or roadmap to understanding the human condition. I worry that uh, novels are out of fashion. Uh, we live in a society where uh, some universities are banning our great works of literature. Well, they don't need to ban them, do they? Because people don't read. And if you, if you have a society in which people's, from the earliest age, uh, people are offered electronic entertainment, whether it be computer games or all the other things that they do, then the, the imagination atrophies just as your, have you ever broken a, a limb? Wrist early, when I was yeah, in I broke, eight or nine. I broke my ankle once. And the, the most astonishing thing about this was when I finally came to take the plaster off was that my entire calf, calf muscle had, had atrophied and mm -hmm. almost ceased to exist. I had spent weeks and weeks getting it back into, 
and this is what happens to the to the imagination uh, if you constantly feed people a diet of moving pictures and noise. And if you don't have an imagination, what's a book? It's just a, it's just a, it's just a great wadge of paper with uh, the squiggles on it. How are you ever going to get any pleasure out of it if your imagination doesn't turn that wadge uh, into a into a great uh, thrilling series of, of pictures? action, conversation, battles, confrontations, tragedies, and comedies. It doesn't do it. And in a society which has more or less abolished imagination, uh, the book is dead. I've Very few people, I think, now read books for pleasure under the age of 30. I agree. I agree. Uh, a lot of people can just about, can just about cope with an audio book. Uh, I've recorded all my books, all but two, which I can't record, but uh, because I'm quite sure that if I didn't, then an awful lot of people who I would like to experience them never will. They're not going to sit and read them. It's something which I do, I was brought up to do, and I still mm. love doing, but I know that, that, that many people younger than me are never going to do it. It's gone. I remember the novelist Sebastian Falks saying to me, this is the first generation in human history to be stupider than the previous one. I but think what, it's, what, it's what, what stupider. You, what, it's, it's, not a, it's not a question of stupid. You, you can be extremely intelligent but utterly uninformed. Uh, and also you lack a certain type of intelligence. In my view, for instance, the imagination is crucial because it's in the imagination that we work out moral questions. How will this action affect others? Uh, the ability even to understand that it will affect others relies on the imagination. Otherwise, you only experience the action as yourself doing it. You don't understand that anybody else is affected by it. Is there a role for the state in saying to parents, no screens until <laughs> XXX? Well, the well, it looks a fair I, question. I don't, I, mean, I, I don't see how the state could Im could impose any such thing. I think it's gone. You see, I think I think the civilization that I was brought up in has gone. I think, and is irrecoverable. It seems that way to me. Yes. Generally, things are irrecoverable. You can destroy in a week something that's taken two thousand years to create. Jonah Goldberg, in his book Suicide of the West and Liberal Democracy before that, talks about this window, this extraordinary alchemy that went into that 400-year period, particularly around the Netherlands and, and England, Con the rule of law, contract, patents, all that sort of stuff. And this is exactly your point, I think, that there's, we are almost an accident of history. Oh, and people are. assume it was a natural arc of progress. <laughs> and guess what? It, it probably wasn't. No, I don't believe it was for me. So you, 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 there's no point banning screens, but what about other things that rot the brain, cannabis, for instance? It's, I suppose it's still, it may be possible to prevent the actual formal legalization of marijuana. I see that the House of Commons Home Affairs Committee is about to have its third investigation to the drug laws in what, 20 years now. And I'm quite why it feels the need to keep doing this, uh, as it always comes up with the same conclusion. But uh, there is an immensely powerful, uh, extremely well-funded pressure group for the legalization of marijuana. And you fight it at your peril, uh, even if all the arguments are on your side. Uh, maybe it can be prevented for a little while longer, but the, the truth is that the, the only battle remaining is the one over actual de facto legalization. The drug itself has been uh, de jure legalization, I should say. The thing has now been de facto decriminalized. And you can walk, particularly in the summer months, from side to side and end to end of, of the great capital of this country, and you smell almost nothing but marijuana. The idea that we have some kind of strict 
severe prohibition against it is, is so nonsensical, and yet people keep advancing it as a serious argument over and over again. Can we just talk about another campaign? I don't know what you think about assisted dying, but I know I've, I've observed in recent years that there's often, it's often the case that the people who are advocating for a change in the law to make assisted dying uh, euthanasia easier uh, often pres are one of the same campaigners and victims and that my tribe in journalism especially in broadcasting tend to give them a, a fractionally easier ride because they don't like to be rude to victims whereas I think you've surrendered any extra protection that you gain from being a victim the moment you become a campaigner and I think that tells you something not just about campaigning tactics but about a fundamental weakness in journalism. Yes, I think that's true, but hard cases are a fundamental weakness in human society. Hard cases make bad law. We obsess about them in journalism. But hard cases are what we do. We, that's, that's what we write about. Uh, it's now, it's, it, there is a comparison, which is, of course, the laws against abortion, which were um, actually much more complicated than people think they were before 1967. Uh, again, any kind of knowledge of this is a, is a, is a huge disadvantage. But the... The argument was made, of course, again, from hard cases that we really couldn't have people going through this terrible trauma of being forced to take a baby to term after uh, after a rape or something of that kind, or you know, there they were in conditions of terrible poverty. And the effect of the change in the law was to create abortion on demand on a very large scale. And I think the principal argument against assisted dying is especially in a, in a country in which the, the survival of the old to great ages is now a, a, actually a major social and, and, and medical problem. Uh, where is that going to lead? Well, it's got us to where. Where might it lead? And, and it should, people will say, no, 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 it will only, assisted dying will, will only ever be conducted under under the most careful supervision. Well, they said that about abortion as well. It yeah. didn't happen. So I think one's entitled to be nervous. I was due to interview yesterday, it didn't happen for technical reasons, a young woman with Down syndrome who's campaigning to have the current rules that allow for up-to-term abortion yes. for somebody with Down syndrome. And I think if people knew, actually, if, if that conversation was framed in a different way, because the hard cases work both ways, don't they? It's not, not, not just the hard cases that lead to more liberal reforms. Sometimes hard cases can actually lead to people to reflect on other aspects of the law. Can I just, to your point about lots of old people, someone like Martin Amis says, uh, well, we just need a cubicle where they can have a glass of gin and a pill and off they go. I don't, there is, there, we have a surfeit of older people. Part of the solution to that problem is to have more younger people. Um, we look at countries like Hungary, where, for instance, if you have four children, you pay no income tax. They've embraced a policy of pronatalism. They want to, as the phrase goes, grow their own. They're criticised for being nativist for so doing. What do you think they are? I think the French do the same, don't they? No to nothing like the same extent. Perhaps not, but the principle's the same, isn't it? And I, I think it's, it's, it's really peculiar, uh, the attitude we take towards the, the whole subject of abortion. But I... I I despair of it. <laughs> Could you um, give us grounds for optimism? Anything that's no. giving you? <laughs> I mean, no, across the piece. no optimism is optimism is is is, is, is is the is the handbook of fools. It's it's the key to unhappiness. I think any 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 better way of making yourself miserable. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much indeed.